Welcome to Cars Yeah, show number 550. Always try to be grateful for the people that I have known and, and been influenced by. This is Cars Yeah, where you'll enjoy interviews with inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Mark Green is here to provide you with a fuel injection of automotive inspiration. So get in, sit down, buckle up, and get ready for a wild ride here on Cars Yeah. I'll never worry again about having a dead battery with my NOCO Genius Boost Jump Starter. This compact tool fits in my glove box and features rechargeable lithium battery technology that'll jumpstart a dead battery in my car, boat, truck, or RV. The Genius Boost features built-in spark-proof technology and reverse polarity protection to safely jumpstart any of my vehicles. The compact, ergonomically designed clamps are built from solid copper for maximum conductivity. There's a built-in ultrabite dual LED flashlight with seven modes, including an SOS and emergency strobe. I use my Genius Boost Jump Starter to charge my phone, tablet, and laptop while I'm on the road or if the power goes out in my home. The unit itself is easily rechargeable in my vehicle. The Genius Boost from NOCO is the ultimate emergency tool that's safe and easy to use. Quality design, state-of-the-art technology from NOCO, the battery car source since 1914. I've got one in each of my vehicles. Get yours at GeniusChargers.com. Hello, automotive enthusiasts. I am revved up and so excited to introduce today's very special guest, Reeves Calloway. Reeves, are you buckled up and ready for a fun ride? Ready and willing. All right. Great to have you here. Reeves Calloway is the founder of Calloway Cars, Calloway Engineering, Calloway Carbon, and Calloway Competition. Since 1977, he and his talented team provide driving enthusiasts with maximum satisfaction by producing specialty vehicles, engineering services, and performance products that showcase technological sophistication, artistry and design, and quality, plus beauty and craftsmanship. Reeves raced up until 1973, winning the national championship in SCCA's Formula V. He was a driving instructor and a designer and a builder. Callaway, of course, is an iconic brand with the Chevrolet mark. So, Reeves, I've told our listeners just a tiny, tiny bit about you. Would you take a brief moment, share a little bit more before we get into the questions about your business and, of course, your passion for automobiles? Yes, of course. And listening to you read those uh, that that sort of marketing spiel, <laughs> I, I'm I'm only slightly embarrassed. <laughs> <laughs> You're an icon in my mind. So, just being able to sit here and learn a little bit about the man behind the brand is uh, is very intriguing to me. So uh, go for it. Well, I think a, a good place to start background-wise is to remind folks that all of the people who have gained a reputation in this business started somewhere. And this is really one of those garage-to-industry kinds of stories. You know, I was a unemployed, probably largely unemployable <laughs> race car driver, which is a pretty sketchy thing to do. Yes. And when I finally ran out of money after working for the best race car constructors in the United States, which was at that point Autodynamics in Marblehead, Mass., mm -hmm. where Sam Posey and Ray Caldwell had put together everything from Can-Am cars to Formula Vs, and I was the factory driver, and I 
I managed to win the national championship and then become disqualified immediately. Uh-oh. And the summary of that story was a really good learning lesson, which is having achieved you know, a, a real hard-fought goal in your life, and then to have the, the winds of circumstance fall against you was a moment in which you had better decide to buck it up and continue sure. or, or not carry on. So what the carry on aspect of it was for me was that I had taken all of the skills that I had learned in race car preparation, design, and engineering and started a little business in the back of my house in Old Lyme, Connecticut that didn't even have a garage. Oh, wow. But the, the task was really to put food on the table. Of course, yeah. It was not to become an automotive icon. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah, you know, this story is so awesome to me because when you think about great companies that started in garages, I mean, gosh, Hewlett Packard comes to mind, Steve Jobs comes to mind, I mean, and, and a lot of automotive companies as well. So tell us a little bit more. Well, the remarkable thing was the introduction of good timing and good luck, <laughs> because uh, you remember that cars of that vintage, you know, 1973, 4, or 5, were uh, pretty disastrous in terms oh, of yeah. performance. Yep. So something like a 1977 BMW or a Volkswagen GTI or uh, any of the good German cars had enough engineering headroom to stand uh, a 50, 60, 70% increase in horsepower without blowing up. Mm -hmm. So that's what we did, or that's what I did. I said, this little BMW 320 uh, really could use another 100 horsepower. <laughs> it, it probably had 90 horsepower to begin with, realistically. Sure. But I found a way to put a very rudimentary turbocharger system on the car and sold it as a kit. Yep. And lo and behold, the orders started to roll in. And, you know, the truth was we had barely more than a drill press finding out how to do, you know, a, um, a nodular iron casting to make the exhaust system uh, and to get into fuel control and fabrication and nice looking tubing and right kinds of connectors and instructions and bits and put them in the box. And lo and behold, people were able to put them uh, on their own car out in the field, and they actually worked, and uh, boy, they made a lot of power. Yes, they did. And I'll tell you a little side note here. When I was in high school, I uh, graduated in 76, and a year after, I had a friend with a 320 BMW who put one of your turbochargers on his car. So that's, that's how far back we go. Well, I hope that he was uh, happy with the result. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. We both had smiles on our faces when we were getting that car. It made a huge, huge difference. Well, we're going to learn a lot more about you, but I loved you taking us back to that beginning. But first, I always like to start with a success quote. This is some kind of saying that's been instrumental in forming your life and your success, and it's a really nice way to get the inspirational tires turning here on Cars. Yeah, I know you love to drive and love to drive fast, so Reeves, take the wheel. You know, if, if I had to summarize uh, a, a good success quote, which is really more of a mantra for me, mm -hmm. it boils down to, uh, I love to construct things. I, I love to build whatever it is that needs to be built. And, you know, the craftsman has a conversation with himself as he builds things. 
and it, it centers around how good would you like this thing to be when you're done? Mm. You know, either how pretty or how well-functioning or how nicely finished. And so my success quote is always centered around figuring out how to construct something to the best of my ability rather than to a, a price or a, a time deadline. It's really how can I make this thing the best possible, most uh, enjoyable, admirable aspect of this thing when it's done. And, and you know, if you take a look at all of the people that we admire in, in the field of having made automobiles, the ones that we really admire, the Duesenbergs, the, the Rolls-Royces, the Ferraris, or any great example of beauty and craftsmanship are the people who tried to make it to the best of their ability. Yes. You know, this is so timely because I just sent Ross Bentley of Speed Secrets a article I wrote for him to appear on his uh, newsletter, and it was about this specific thing, and it has to do with quality and the importance of quality. In this case, it was about racing and safety aspects. I think for most of us in the car world, and if you go back to Henry Ford when he started building his first cars, it was for the masses, but he found out pretty quickly that people wanted more than just a cheap car. They wanted something to be proud of. And I think mm. that's exactly what you're hitting on. Mm-hmm. I think you're right. Most definitely. Well, let's go back in time a little bit and talk about a story that instigated your passion for cars. Is there a pivotal moment in your life when you go back that you realized, oh my gosh, I'm a car guy? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, there are, I think there are several of those moments. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, the one that I remember most clearly, was strolling around the Philadelphia Auto Show in 1970 or 1969 and coming across a little autocross-style car that had been built by Autodynamics in Marblehead, Mass., by Alex Dearborn and his crew. And this car uh, demonstrated a cleverness of construction that I had never seen before. It was essentially summarized by saying that every single aspect of the car did more than one thing. Every bracket, every support, every mount, every mechanical thing in the automobile was uh, doing more than one job. Mm-hmm. And I said, wow, this is, I have to figure out how to make something like that. <laughs> yes. The beginning of that engineering mind started to, to mesh, eh? That's what, uh, that's what pushed me in that direction. Uh. Until that point, I was always the kind of kid who was taking things apart and putting things back together, but winding up with a pile of leftover parts. <laughs> you sound like a Colin Chapman. How can I lighten this thing and make it go faster? Add lightness. Yes, right. add lightness. Yeah, I always love that quote. Well, it really comes true and through in the products that you developed over time, and When we look at some of the roads that you've traveled down, you've chosen a field, first racing, very difficult, difficult to make a living in, and then as an entrepreneur that has ups and downs and crashes and turns and all sorts of things, I would love for you to share with us a huge challenge or better a big failure that you faced along the way. But the most important part of this is how did you overcome that situation and what did it teach you so you could move forward? Take us to that painful moment, if you will, and uh, tell us how you worked your way through it. Sure. I've got a a good one that uh, is a very clear example of adversity that turns into success. Awesome. The extension of building turbocharger applications for whatever automobile had led us to seek 
a relationship with an original equipment manufacturer so that we could enjoy that endorsement. Mm. It's traditional in the car business to have a specialist work on the original equipment's base product. I see. And, and it's, you know, whether it's AMG to Mercedes or um, uh, Fiat and Abarth or Lister and Jaguar or Alpine and Renault or Alpina and BMW, there's always been the commercial sense behind that kind of relationship. And we got a call from Alfa Romeo when they were still in the United States mm -hmm. and said, you know, we would like to build a twin-turbo Alfa Romeo GTV6 in order to compete in the marketplace with the Maserati B-Turbo. Okay. So that dates it, I think. That was, what, yeah. 80, 84? Yeah, 80, something like mid that. Mid-80s, sure. Right. So we were a little nervous about turbocharging the Alpha because of its sort of reputation in the field <laughs> as unreliable. Sure. It turned out that that was not borne out by our testing. We turbocharged them. They were tremendously fun. They ran really nicely and reliably. And just as the magazine articles started to hit, uh, with the car being in production, and this was our first big production job, mm -hmm. Alfa Romeo decided to fold its tent and go back to Italy. Uh, uh, okay. So we had built a factory here in Connecticut. We were pushing about 35 or 6 car out the door. And Alfa, our biggest client, says... Goodbye. Arrivederci. <laughs> oh my gosh. So I, we're standing around yeah. saying, hey, now what? Mm. You know, we were, we were a one trick pony. Yeah. Yeah. So we're twiddling our thumbs wondering what on earth can we do? One of the alphas wound up at the General Motors Proving Grounds as part of a, a competitive set study, which they do all the time. And Dave McClellan, who was then the chief engineer of the Corvette platform, called up and said, you know, we have this little two-and-a-half-liter twin-turbo V6 here from Alpha that you did that is a dead ringer performance-wise for a 1985 Corvette. Oh. How did you do that? <laughs> that was a rhetorical question because, of course, he knew. Sure. How we, uh, and he said, you know, we have a program for turbocharging Corvettes, and it's just been killed mm. because we're going to go with a four valve double overhead cam lotus designed lt5 approach to the marketplace okay. but there's so much enthusiasm internally for the twin turbo version of the corvette primarily because it makes so much torque right that uh, we would like to have somebody carry this on and if you were to do that we would sell the car and you build them wow Oh, my gosh, how fortuitous was that? So that, of course, is the call that you wait for yes. in, in the specialist engineering business, right? Yes, yes. Wow. So the irony was, was, you know, we were almost out of business with the Alpha. The call from Chevrolet was propitious and timely. And here we are, the world's smallest little specialty car company working with the world's largest manufacturer of automobiles. Wow. So let me ask you then, what is the takeaway from that experience that you could reflect back on and, and tell those listeners out there that might be facing a similar challenge when their egg of basket of eggs has just fallen to the ground and broken? Is there one takeaway from that? Gosh, I think it's probably what Roger Penske always said, which is luck is where 
preparation meets opportunity. Absolutely. <laughs> I love that saying. Oh, I've said that many times. My listeners will uh, chuckle at that because I have said that when people say they're lucky. And I said, I don't think there's any such thing as luck. Yeah, preparation and opportunity. What an awesome story. Thank you for sharing that. Let's shift gears here and let's go to the other end of the spectrum. I'd love for you to share what I like to call a career aha moment. It's a time when those nice H4 headlights come on and illuminate the way. And tell us the steps you took to turn your career aha moment into your success. Well, I'm going to give you a little story that, that may not be the direct answer to the aha moment, but it certainly was a moment. And, and it, it went like this. There was a popularity of top speed testing in the late 70s, early 80s, when people would, would people like car and driver would run fastest in the land kind of contests, right? right? Yeah. So w we would be a participant in those, and we were always running at the pointy end of those gatherings. But each year was a different car, and it was uh, expensive. I mean, it was really expensive, mm -hmm. and it was also getting dangerous. So my proposal to our friends at the Corvette platform was, why don't we just build one automobile that is an adjustable amount of top speed? Adjustable? Yeah, because in, with turbocharging, that's, that's a way to do that. There you you go. can just up the manifold pressure, and, and the car will go faster. Ah, okay. But, le but let's not show its full potential. Mm. Let's run it only as fast as necessary to win the event, and then take it home, put the car away, bring it out next year, and do the same thing all over again. <laughs> you know, because it was a million bucks yeah. to build a car for those tests. Oh, right? yeah, yeah. And then there was never enough time for testing and blah, blah, blah. So we finally said, um, how fast do you think we'll have to go so that we are never um, beaten? Mm. So we calculated, let's say, 250. And we pulled that number just out of thin air, you know. Yeah. Nobody's ever going to be able to go more than 250 miles an hour in a road car. Mm -hmm. So that was, that was our goal. But, of course, we had to go test it to make sure that it really would do that. But we wanted to test in private so that nobody ever found out about it. Okay. But there's only a few places where you can go that fast, and one of them was the Transportation Research Center in Ohio, which has a seven-and-a-half-mile oval, and I was doing the driving. Nice. And my aha moment was at about 248 miles an hour, you know, and you're covering ground at a real clip. Oh, yes. Oh, gosh. That's more than a football field every second. Uh, yeah, it's incredible. And uh, my aha moment was, boy, this is really stupid. <laughs> yes, I could die really <laughs> fast here. Because you're not in control. Right. And anything could happen. Mm. And small mistakes are magnified. Yep. And this isn't about driving skill. It's about risk. Yes. And so I promised myself at that point, I'm not doing this anymore. Mm. So I'm sorry if that's not a, an aha moment, but it's a, it's a moment of some sort. Well, I think it's an awesome moment. You know, part of your story brings to mind two things here. And I love the concept of bringing a car out and then bringing the same car back and just adjusting it. I know that upcoming here, the very first Shelby Cobra is going to be sold at auction. Mm. that everyone's starting to talk about. And what I didn't realize about that was when old Carroll Shelby first brought that car out, he sent it off to one magazine, first in yellow, then he brought it back, painted it, 
sent it off to another magazine in blue and then again in red. And everybody thought he had a whole fleet of these cars when it was the same car going out being repainted. And Fruccio Lamborghini did the same thing with his Countach. The first car was painted red, and then he sent it out again to another auto show in green. And people thought, oh, there's more than one when there was really... (laughs) Because obviously back in the day, as with you, you know, you're watching your pennies and you need to look bigger than you are. So uh, I love that. There's a couple aha moments in that story, but I'm glad you came to that realization. Those speeds are scary, scary speeds. We take it for granted when we watch professional racing cars go that fast, like the Indy 500. Oh my gosh, it's an incredibly fast speed. Well, let's move forward into proudest career moments. You know, you've been doing this for a long time, and I would assume you've had many proud career moments, but is there one in particular you could share with us? Yeah, yeah, there is. I think as the constructor of automobiles, one of the tests of your uh, your metal, your authenticity, mm-hmm. is a 24-hour race. Mm, yes. And the the most difficult one of those is Le Mans. Mm-hmm. So our first entry year at Le Mans was 1994 with a Corvette, which hadn't been at Le Mans for 18 years prior to that. Oh, wow. So this was sort of new for us. It was new for the French. It was new for the Mark. And, um, you know, qualifying at Le Mans is done at night between 12 o'clock midnight and 1 Mm a.m. And anything can happen. And as the clock winds down, various people, contenders, are going to float to the top of the timing charts. And it's traditional for Porsche to uh, take the pole position in in class, which was the GT2 class in those days. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I'm in the pits with our car out on the track in the hands of Boris Sedd. Ah, yes, a a fellow past Carsia guest here. Yep. And Boris, first time at Le Mans, was doing a fabulous job. And, of course, the car had almost zero time on it, being finished just in the nick of time. And I'm standing at the door of the Porsche Motorsport trailer. Mm -hmm. And inside is the chief of all Porsche Motorsport, the man who developed the 917K, Norbert Singer. Singer, yeah. Yeah. And Jürgen Barth is in there, and he's the head of customer motorsport for Porsche. And they're watching the timing charts as the last two minutes of uh, qualifying is winding down, and Porsche's at the top. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, Boris and the Callaway Corvette pop to the top of the charts by like, by like six seconds. Nice. <laughs> Not nice. like six tenths of a second, right. but like six seconds. Yeah, that's a whole day in Le Mans timing. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and Singer hits the roof. Of course. And says to Barth, it says, Jürgen, was ist this Scheißtrick Callaway? <laughs> Which means, what's this dirty trick? Uh, yeah, what's he up to? And so, since we build the cars in Germany, uh, Jürgen, Barth, and, and we're right next to Porsche. It, it, our shop is. Oh, in okay. okay. Barth says to Dr. Singer, says, uh, Herr Dr. Singer, das ist ein richtige deutsche Rennwagen. This is a real German race car. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
trying to deflect uh, away from the fact that it was an American car. Of course. It's built in Germany. So. Yeah, yeah. Give, give a little solace to what he just witnessed. <laughs> Mark, I got to tell you, that was, that was one proud moment. Oh, man. What a story. Uh, the hairs on my arms are standing up. I wasn't even there. So, uh, wow. Talk about giant killers. Awesome. I love that. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. Well, let's have a little bit of fun here. I'd love for you to share what your first really special car was and take us back in time and share maybe a memory about that vehicle. Oh boy, there've been <laughs> there've been a lot of them. Well, that's why I always say the first because yeah, for someone that's been around like you have, there's been a lot, but if you go back to that first car that maybe something you were wishing for, you worked really hard towards, maybe it was the first time you jumped in a real race car and you went, "Man, this is so cool." Well, the car that I was describing that was built at Autodynamics in the late 60s called the Deserter GS looked like a dune buggy. It was an autocross car. It had a mid-engine Corvair power. It weighed about 1,100 pounds and made about 290 or 300 horsepower. So it was wow. w- yeah. it was wicked quick. Oh, yeah. And, you know, it was on Goodyear Blue Streaks and it, it was as close to a race car as you could drive on the street, you know, and it went zero to 60 in like the blink of an eye, and it stopped on a dime. And, man, I thought, this is what driving a four-wheel vehicle is all about. So that, for me, was the eye-opening moment yeah. of uh, maybe, maybe trying to become a race car driver. <laughs> it's all the car's fault. Uh, of course it is. Yeah, I've tried to tell my wife that too many times. It never never flies past her smart head though. <laughs> let's talk about seller's remorse. Go down that other alley, back into the garage. Is there a car that you let go that you really wish you had back? Yeah, of course. Of course. Daily. Daily. <laughs> oh, This is a daily regret. Oh. When I was in college, I found a wrecked 275 GTB two-cam short-nose Ferrari in 1966. Ooh. And uh, I learned how to do aluminum bodywork by fixing this car. And when it was done, it was an eye-opening experience to drive this car. You know, a 12-cylinder front engine, rear gearbox, beautiful, this Scaglietti design. Oh, yeah. Just as pretty as a car could be. So that was a high watermark for me in terms of how a car looked. But I tell you what I also got as an aha moment out of it, uh-huh. which was this was one of the last cars that was built under Enzo's watch. Yeah, sure. And so as you drove it, you felt, you heard, and you you witnessed what this man wanted as far as, look, the engine is going to be here. The gearbox is going to be here. The steering wheel is going to be like this. The field of vision is going to be like this. The look of the car is going to be like this. This is one man's idea of what the machine should be. Mm. So that's, I think, what we call character. Yes, yes. How long ago did you let that car go? Well, I sold it strictly out of necessity. And I think I sold it for probably $12,000 mm-hmm. in 1967. Well, 67, that was a bunch of money back then. So. When you could give the damn car away. <laughs> <laughs> I know, isn't that crazy? Who'd have thunk? <laughs> so, you know, a, a two or three or four million dollar car today. Oh, gosh. Talk about regrets. Yeah, well, you know, I always say at least you were fortunate to have it, the experience you had with it, what you got to do with it, get your hands dirty 
you know, put that car back together. Uh, that's where the value really lies. So, do you remember what a- Adrian Renard said about uh, regrets? Uh, no, but I fear you're going to tell me. <laughs> this is a good one. He said, "Aha, regrets. Those are the building blocks of experience." Ah, uh, yes, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> nice, nice story. Reeves, I'm having so much fun with you today that I'm going to make this show into two shows for our listeners because I don't want to edit any of this amazing and incredible uh, history you've been sharing with us today. So, listeners, make sure you tune in tomorrow for the second half of my talk with Reeves Calloway. If you own collector cars and still have a little bit of money left over, congratulations. You're ahead of most people. But what should you do with the money you don't spend on cars? Talk to Chris Kimball, Certified Financial Planner Practitioner. For over 20 years, he's been helping people just like you and me with their financial planning and investments. And he's a car guy, too. Call 253-722-PLAN. Or you can view his website at www.chrisvkimball.com. Make sure your investments are running on all eight cylinders, or 12, or 16. Securities through Money Concepts Capital Corp. member, Finra Sipic. Thank you so much for joining us on today's ride here at Cars Yeah! Drive on over to CarsYeah.com to find show notes and inspiring automotive fun. Download your free copy of Filler Up! A fun book filled with gorgeous photographs of fuel filler fun, including quotes from more inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Download your copy today, and we'll see you next time on Cars Yeah!